Good afternoon from American Student Radio. I'm Sheila Raghavendran, your host for today. You're listening to us on WIUX LP Bloomington, where we broadcast every Sunday at noon. This semester, we're changing things up, and shows will be only 30 minutes long, so please catch us while we're here. You can also download our episodes on iTunes or stream on SoundCloud after we broadcast at soundcloud.com slash American-student-radio. Stick with us. From Bloom, from uh, again live, live. What is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is this is this is American Student Radio. Real chill, real chill. Aliens, conspiracy, journalism, and lesbians. Anytime power changes hands, there is some air of uncertainty about what comes next. On Friday, Donald Trump was sworn in as the 45th president of the United States. The purpose of our episode today is to discuss what comes next for the country and some of the people in it. Us, me, you, we the people. That's our theme today. And two disclaimers right up front. First, American Student Radio is aware that experiences of people in the past few months have been diverse, and our pieces today only feature a small portion of those stories. There are many more to tell. Secondly, we don't aim to have the answers to these tough questions. We're merely storytellers tapping into the lives of these people to better understand what is going on. And we hope you'll listen. Uh, my name is Senator Bud Estes from the state of Kansas. Okay, and why are you here today? Uh, for the inauguration. Are you excited? Oh, yes. Yeah, we're very hopeful for the future. What's your biggest aspiration for this new administration? We need some help on the uh, Obamacare. We just need something that will work. And uh, I have great, great hope that, uh, that this administration will, will take us down that road. Can I get your name? It's Jennifer. And why are you here today? Uh, because I'm really, really excited about what's getting ready to happen for our country. Um, I think uh, people who aren't stuck in larger cities where, you know, where, where the prior administration was really focused on are going to get a lot of people a lot more attention to. I'm from Charleston, West Virginia, and our state has been decimated over the past eight years, and I'm just really excited about the opportunity for those things to turn around. Can I get your name? Uh, Cassandra. And why are you here today? I'm here visiting D.C., Checking out a couple of museums and probably going to an inauguration event. I'm going to the Peace Ball at Bus Boys and Poets. They're hosting at the African American Museum tonight. How do you feel like as we're nearing the inauguration? As of right now, I guess I'm indifferent. My name is Karen. Karen Kenya. My name is Sue Suhood. And why are you guys here today? We are here today because originally we bought tickets thinking that we were going to attend Hillary's inauguration, but we decided that we were going to come and march um, with the women the day after. And how do you feel about the upcoming administration? Uh, It frightens me. May I ask why? I um, am concerned about um, impulsive, reactionary decisions. My fear is is that he believes he understands what people are going through and how people live, but I don't think he does necessarily, and I think his cabinet, they too don't necessarily know uh, the lives of those who haven't come from wealth. 
And is there something you think we can do about it as average citizens? I think one of the things we have to do is constantly be a voice to the people who are influential in making decisions. Can I get your names? Jennifer Hayek. And Joe Hayek. And uh, why are you guys here today? We're here for future generations, and we're here to stand up for those who are not here to stand up for themselves, for the children that think that bullying is okay, for the education system that is going to drastically change going forward. We're here for the environmental impact that we're going to have. Um, we're just here to stand up for our future generations. I put on my sign, we protest for education, environment, human rights, the underserved, the alienated, the popular vote, and the future of America. And our point here is to give people that don't have a voice that voice and realize that we're in solidarity with them. For American Student Radio, I'm Naomi Farahan from Washington, D.C. Thanks to Naomi for that piece. So, we the people. The U.S. Constitution's preamble opens with these three words, and they bear weight. As the introduction to a document that outlines our government, we the people affirms that power ultimately lies with individuals. And it wasn't Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Jefferson, it was founding father Gouverneur Morris who wrote the preamble and gave power to the people in those first three words. And now those people are waiting to see what comes next. Our first piece, We Who Could Be, comes from producer Emily Miles. Emily talked to a Somalian refugee here in Bloomington about his ongoing struggle in helping his family out of a refugee camp. You want me to tell him that I'm in the radio interview? Sure, yeah. Okay. My name is Mohammed Osman Mohammed. I am uh, from Somalia. He's an Indiana University senior calling a cousin who lives in Dadaab, Kenya, in the largest refugee camp in the world. So I'm not answering. Call one other person. I'm going to call my aunt. Muhammad says he calls his family often, though the calls aren't going through right now. Almost all the time they ask me, when are they coming here? And I told them, like, I don't know. I don't know really what to do, but... This has been the story since 2010, when Muhammad and two of his cousins were selected for resettlement in the U.S. He says he also often speaks with representatives from Exodus Refugee Immigration, searching for an answer. So Exodus were the ones who helped us to settle in Indianapolis. And at that time, we were told, you know, your rest of your family members will join you later. And they didn't specify, like, how later. Now it has been six years. They've been there for so many years. They did all the interviews. They were, you know, cleared to come to the U.S. But for some reason, they haven't been able to so far. And I don't know. I don't know the reasons. Twenty Syrian and Congolese families are now asking similar questions. When can they come to Bloomington? And why did their resettlement get put on hold? Best bet is the colon, but for whatever reason, today's not working. Back in September, when the Obama administration announced a plan to increase U.S. refugee resettlement by 30%, Mohammed was in Washington, D.C., working with the Treasury Department as part of IU's Washington Leadership Program. But back in Bloomington, Diane Legomsky was deep into developing the Bloomington Refugee Support Network. It consists of about 350 people, all with the goal of helping those 20 proposed families to settle into the community. We were going to be getting them in March, of course. 
and then a new administration took over and a new Congress with its own budgeting you know, priorities. With the budget that Congress passed, just recently passed, sort of a stopgap budget that's good through April, um, really just keeps all the resettlement work to a 2015 budget, which is totally unrealistic. According to a Pew Research study, the number of refugees entering the U.S. remained constant at about 70,000 between the 2013 and 2015 fiscal years. But this past year, the U.S. received nearly 85,000 refugees, effectively meeting a ceiling set by the Obama administration. The budget did not increase. Another increase in quota without sufficient funding would be hardly sustainable. However, it's not just federal funding. We're especially worried about the government. They can't decide on, you know, refugee eligibility by religion. They can't discriminate. But they can make decisions based on country of origin. A lot of people, including myself, are a little, are somewhat concerned that the government, the new government in, a, in this country might not allow in many Syrian refugees, even though there's huge numbers that need to come. According to Legomsky, the Christian Burmese and Congolese people have a better chance of making it to Bloomington, but even that is only an educated guess. You know, I really think throughout so many people in this country, there's this low-level stress that's been, I think, eating at everybody, too. You know, we're worried about the refugees, we're worried about immigrants, we're worried about Planned Parenthood, you know, just worried about so many vulnerable people, and um, <clears throat> it's a very scary time. Um, the one good thing is that people are getting more and more activated. I've gotten so many emails from people in our refugee network asking what they can do to help. They want to advocate. They want to help the refugees already here in Indianapolis. So there's going to be a lot of um, outreach to the refugees and the resettlement agencies, you know, in Indianapolis for sure and, and Fort Wayne, which are the two main cities in Indiana right now that, get, that have refugees. Currently, most refugee resettlement goes through the State Department, but Legomsky says it doesn't have to be that way. We want to also advocate for some private sponsorship on the, on the Canada model um, to, to happen in addition to the public kind of sponsorship. So that's, that's one thing we're going to be advocating for. And then, then we don't have to worry about all the, all the red tape of Congress budgets and things like this. You know, we fundraise to try to help the, the refugees on a private basis. Muhammad and his cousins have made a similar offer. We even told them, you know, like, uh, my two cousins are here, I'm here. Although I don't work, my two cousins work, and we told them if they bring our family, they don't have to, you know, worry about getting them a rent like they did, getting them an apartment and providing them with the food and stuff like that. We will be able to take care of them, and we will be able to help them to get the documents they need and everything, and all you have to do is just help us to get them here. It's, I mean, it's early for like 9, 9 p.m. They don't go to sleep that early. Uh, there's nothing to do in the refugee. You wake up in the morning, there's literally nothing to do. It's just get water, get food, which is mostly provided by, you know, the U.N. So they don't have jobs or anything. So for them, day and night is the same thing. He remembers life for his family before seeking refuge in Kenya. At that time, it was hard for them, you know, to stay in the country because the government would accuse them of being al-Shabaab and al-Shabaab would accuse them of being the government and a lot of people just get killed for no reasons and it was hard. But the camp isn't easy. 
and Mohammed often thinks about where he would be if he were not granted access to the U.S. I don't really know how it would be, but I'm sure it would not be anywhere close to this. For me to get a, you know, a sense of what I would have been for me if I didn't come to the U.S., I can only compare myself to my friends and the people that I used to live with and to see where they are today. A lot of them, the ones who did the best, they graduated from high school and they have nothing to do. They're just home with their mothers. So I can just imagine me sitting home doing nothing in a refugee camp in Kenya or going back home and still doing nothing. But here, his cousins have gone to work in Ohio and Texas, and Mohammed hopes to work with the federal government and attend graduate school. One of my goals is, you know, to go back home and help my country and my people with the knowledge and the education that I've gained here, with the, you know, the opportunity that I was given to me. He says he hopes the rest of his family and the families who plan to come to Bloomington may come into the same fortune. And if you are lucky enough, you know, to come to the U.S. and you've been given the, you know, the privilege to live here and to study. I'll say, make the best out of it. And you know, sometimes it's hard. Some will succeed, some will fail. But nonetheless, it's nothing like living in refugee camp. Thanks to Lobo Loco for the music in this piece. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Emily Miles. Please open your app to make calls. What do you mean? I'm on my app. It's not even ringing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and we can try again in a little bit if, if you want. Sure, we can do that. Millennials, people between the ages of 18 and 35, are the largest living generation in America. In our next piece, We the Young People, I looked into campus activism of the 1960s and student protest patterns of today. My name is Luke Robbins, and kind of something I like to say about myself is I've been involved in politics since I was really young. So, Since how young? Oh, uh, well, I remember being, like, even before elementary school was interested, but I remember in first grade I held a mock election between John Kerry and um, George W. Bush, so. With that mock election, Robbins caught the political bug. Now in his sophomore year at IU, Robbins has his eyes set on running for office soon. Sooner rather than later. And played a major role in organizing students the day after the 2016 election. He said he woke up on November 9th, noticed that a lot of people were upset, and talked with his significant other about organizing a rally, which was eventually dubbed the Rally for Love. I've gone to several political rallies before, and I've been involved with elections, so I kind of understood what it means to organize and try to get people motivated and together. And so I told him, let's start it on social media. That's usually how it starts out. And so I created an, an event on Facebook, and he shared it. And then we just started inviting our friends, and I started emailing, texting, calling people, I reached out to the newspapers and to media from Indianapolis, and it just grew from there. Arguably, the 2016 election cycle and Friday's inauguration energized student movements like Robinson's Rally and others, but campus activism is nothing new. College life was built around student organizations, uh, originally organizations sponsored by the institutions themselves. That's IU history professor Michael McGurr. I'm Michael McGurr professor of history at IU. And he said campus activism has been around for a long time. Time.com said that students have been speaking out since at least 1638 when Harvard students complained about their food. 
But Professor McGurr said that the 1960s introduced the new idea of radicalism. Radicalism, according to Merriam-Webster, represents the opinions and behavior of people who favor extreme changes, especially in government. Professor McGurr taught a course last semester on the 60s and said colleges gave students the outlet to assert themselves unlike they had before. With respect to student activism in the 1960s, in one sense, it was a clearer and simpler situation. Students could feel a certain basic kind of unity because they sensed a divide between young people and adult authority, and that played out in the way universities themselves were run with parietal rules and all of that, and then with something as stark as the draft, which took young men uh, and was run by adults and at a time when young men couldn't vote. It's easy to forget, though, that uh, student activists were a minority at any given time, including in the 1960s. Professor McGurr said that student activism today hasn't taken shape the way the movement of the 60s did, and it may never. So far, some students are angry enough to want to do something, but the, the particular issue that's going to crystallize a student movement that expands and grows and makes, makes a difference, the particular form that it's going to take, and even if it's going to take that form, isn't clear. Like Professor McGurr, Luke Robbins also said that young people haven't yet found a singular unifying cause to support. For me, this election was big on making college more affordable. But as for one issue, I think we're still in, still in the stage of trying to create a cause to get behind. And I don't know if there's one particular issue to get behind because there's so many different things. He said that he hopes young people will find a cause that's broad, like equal rights, namely, he said, for LGBTQ people, women, and minorities. Reagan Kirk, the chairman for IU's College Republicans, said she recognizes concerns like Robbins's and others and those that vary even within the Republican Party itself. We exist for the people who are fully supportive of Trump and have backed him all the way, and we also exist for the people a part of the Never Trump movement. And we, again, we exist to provide an environment for those people to come together and then talk about those things to move forward because the goal isn't necessarily to... um, to support Trump or to attack the other side, um, the goal is to have effective and efficient governing, and we just want to see that happen regardless of who's in office. Like Robbins, Kirk said it's hard to say what's next for students, but she said one thing is certain. Things are changing. I think there's no way to determine exactly what the next step is, but I know that the next step will involve new changes and new issues and new debates that I'm really looking forward to tackling and then finding a way to make a difference in some way. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Sheila Raghavendran. Music provided by Blue Dot Sessions under a Creative Commons license. On day one, as promised, President Trump signed an executive order to start pulling back the Affordable Care Act. In the next piece, We the Insured, Carter Barrett explores how a medical clinic has changed throughout the Obama administration and the uncertainty of health care under President Trump. If you were to walk into Volunteers in Medicine Clinic, past the lobby and wind through the hallway into Assistant Director Shelley Silly's office, you'd find a tiny plastic Gumby on the corner of her desk. He looks, well, like Gumby. Green, human-like, with a slight grin and hands thrown into the air. 
Shelly says Gumby sits on the corner of her desk as a constant reminder to be flexible. Before attending the inaugural balls, the president took the first step towards fulfilling one of his biggest campaign promises, repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. There is already infighting within the Republican Party alone on how best to replace Obamacare, what to keep, what to reject. It is a tremendously complicated law. Since its establishment in 2010, Obamacare has provided an estimated 20 million Americans with health care. But conservatives want to return health care to the hands of private insurers to cut down on costs. In recent weeks, Congress has moved incredibly quickly in attempting to repeal the ACA, which has concerned Democrats and Republicans alike about a lack of replacement. Last week, President Donald Trump took a lot of his own party off guard in a statement he told to the Washington Post. He told the Washington Post this weekend, quote, we're going to have insurance for everybody. People will get it even if they don't have the money to pay for it, he said, and it will be better, simpler, and less expensive. This comment shocked a lot of people. However, they're still concerned because the details of his plan have not been revealed. Later, his counselor, Kellyanne Conway, clarified their position on MSNBC. Donald Trump said health care for all. And what he means by that is there are many who have been left behind. There are people who had benefits and don't have them anymore. Um, either they had to give them up because the premiums went skyrocketed or they were faced with reduced quality and choice and access. And then you've got folks who do rely upon the Affordable Care Act. And he, Donald Trump has promised as president that they will not go without care. In 2015, there was a poverty rate of 23.5% in Monroe County, the highest in the state. While this statistic may be skewed because of the college population, Shelley Salee from Volunteers in Medicine says it still holds some merit. The clinic sees patients who live below the 200% poverty line, which is approximately $23,000 a year before taxes for one person. Some of their patients do qualify for care under the Affordable Care Act or under Indiana's HIP 2.0. They also serve residents of Monroe County that are not American citizens. In addition, the clinic also provides education and support services for people who have trouble navigating the healthcare system. Shelley started at Volunteers in Medicine nine years ago, before the start of the Obama administration. And um, can you tell me maybe a little bit about the environment when you started working? How many people you were seeing, <coughs> um, mm -hmm. that kind of thing, and then maybe into Obama's presidency, sure. how that changed? Sure. Uh, when I first started, we were absolutely swamped. We were averaging about 125 patients a day. We had 80 medical providers that volunteered that were coming on a regular basis seeing people. It was very hard to keep up. When Obamacare was implemented, the clinic saw an approximate quarter decrease in their patients. Then, when Indiana started HIP 2.0, a Medicaid expansion funded by the federal government under Obamacare, they saw a significant portion of their patients leave. Although the clinic still works closely to connect people with the resources and help them through the confusing pathway to health care. It can be challenging and difficult um, for so many of our patients. Um, and if you can imagine being homeless, or um, not being able to read or write, it can be very difficult to understand what needs to be done and to be able to follow through. What would you expect to happen, because there's been a lot of talk recently about the Republicans repealing Obamacare, and there's recent votes just in the last like two days mm -hmm. to defund mm -hmm. Obamacare in the yeah. budget. 
What do you think that would mean for this clinic and the people who come here? I think it would mean we're busy again. Mm-hmm. I have yet to see anything that shows exactly what they will do when they repeal it. What does that mean? Um, and now they're saying repeal and replace. I de- we don't know what that means. Um, so we're prepared. I, we are prepared to see more people. Our goal is to help people um, acquire health care and, and to be healthy and continue to be able to work and take care of their families and live in their community. So we're watching it and we're waiting and seeing. We just don't know enough. The clinic is able to provide a variety of specialty services, including dental care. I'm going to apologize for the sound quality in this next clip. We were in the middle of the bustling clinic at the time. When our dentist, we had it through a grant, we were actually able to get dentures. Mm-hmm. And um, when our dentist was explaining this to a person who he was going to pull their teeth and were able to get them dentures, a tear started rolling down his cheek because he said, I thought it was just going to be another disappointment that no one cared and no one was going to help me. And it was really emotional. It was emotional for the patient and the dentist and the staff that they just felt so hopeless and that no one cared, but we did, and we do. It's good. Yeah, you make a difference in people's lives, but that makes a difference in your own life. And my life is so enriched because of being here. In addition to low-income individuals, many women fear limited access to affordable contraceptives, which are right now covered under the ACA. IUDs are a type of birth control that can last anywhere from 3 to 10 years, but long-term coverage attracts women who are concerned about their future access to abortion or contraceptives. This next clip comes from the president of Planned Parenthood, Cecil Richards, when she was on CNN earlier this month. Under Obamacare, uh, one of the most popular benefits we fought for was birth control coverage for women. Now, 55 million women get it at no copay. We've had a 900% increase in women trying to get into Planned Parenthood to get an IUD because they are desperately concerned that they might lose their access to health care. Following the election, IU sophomore Sophia Mustin made her decision to go get an IUD because of its reliability. I mean, it did coincide a little bit with the election. But I had been thinking about it for a long time before that. It was just the push I needed to say, okay, I might as well try this now while I have the chance and while it's covered. While later she decided to have the device removed for personal reasons, she also invested in three doses of Plan B, an emergency contraceptive. I think it's a good idea to have them on hand in case something does go crazy and, like, it gives me peace of mind about if my options run out. Like, I'll at least have one thing. Like, it would be super easy for a federal agency to change their rules because the agencies are almost all fully in the executive branch. Like, if a federal agency were to say, oh, we no longer think this is okay for over-the-counter, it has to have a prescription. Like, those rules are easier to change, I feel like, than laws. I don't want to be on the receiving end of that. For American Student Radio, I'm Carter Barrett. Music for this piece was provided by Poddington Bear under a Creative Commons license. Our final piece, We the Employed. Casey Ross talks to a small business owner about why she stood by President Trump during the election season. When Evan Striplin watched this year's election results, she'd been up for hours. I mean, I'm staying up all night, and I literally stayed up until 3 o'clock in the morning, and I just watched the numbers come in, and it gets redundant. I mean, you watch the news, and it's 
they're talking and then every hour or so they have an answer about a state. I was so intrigued and just relieved that it was actually happening. Evan plays volleyball every Tuesday and election day was no different. And I almost didn't go because, you know, I want to sit in front of the TV and I want to watch the numbers. And we were playing our game and there's a little bar on the side of our court with a TV in it. And my team was getting so mad at me because every five seconds I was ducking or running in there going to look at the votes and um, you know, when they announced that he won Florida, I was like, oh my God, like this might happen. And I'm super excited. Before Evan went to play her game, she went and voted for our nation's president. Evan is a Trump supporter and she was terrified of Hillary winning. She recalls the dread she felt after she was driving to the polls. Okay, on the way to the polls, I can't even describe the feeling, but I mean, it brought tears in my eyes just thinking about what is going to happen. If he doesn't. And I was, mm-hmm. and I felt very nervous and nauseous, like one of those feelings where something bad is really about to happen and you can't do anything. Like mm-hmm. when you're on the way to a funeral, there's nothing you can do to change the way you feel. That's what, that's how I felt. Evan is the owner of ERS Images, a photography business and a clothing boutique called Sophie Jacks. Evan's been business minded ever since high school, starting her own landscaping company and others before starting the photography business and the boutique. And I was on a run one day with my boyfriend, and we got done, and I looked at him, and I said, I'm going to open a boutique. And he looked at me, and that's crazy. And he said, what? He said, yeah, now I'm going to do it. So when election time rolled around, she knew the candidate for her, Donald Trump. With a Democrat in office for that long, a lot of small businesses suffered. And I was mm-hmm. worried because, I, you know, Donald Trump is a business owner. He gets it, and he supports small businesses. And Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, is not. Evan was terrified of starting her business before the election because she thought if Hillary won, it would cause the business to automatically fail. But she decided to go with her intuition. You know, I thought, okay, should I wait? Should I wait until after the election? You know, do I need to wait and see what happens? Is this smart? Is this a good idea? Um, And I just went with my my gut and did it. But it was definitely, um, definitely nerve-wracking to do that right before the election, and I I didn't even sleep at night because that's how worried I was. So when Trump won the national election, Evan felt an immense sense of relief for both herself and her business. Evan felt as if Trump's stance on small businesses and the economy matched her own. When he was elected, it was like a thousand pounds was lifted off my chest. I felt a lot more confident about the boutique. Not that I didn't before, but I was worried that you know, if another Democrat would have gotten elected, that the economy would not be able to, you know, help my boutique blossom like I wanted to. So I was, so I woke up the next morning and just felt like, okay, our world is seriously about to change in amazing ways. Now that the hype of the election is over, Evan feels as if her business will blossom more than ever. And I, I still am so happy every time I see anything that he's done. I'm just like, oh my goodness. I mean, I feel like I get him because he is a business owner and he has taken so many businesses to the very top. So I, you know, we have like minds and I think it's amazing how he works and what he's going to do for us. So it was such a relief for me knowing that I want to do the things that he's done with his businesses. Evan feels confident in her job after the election. However, there are some that do not. Teachers are outraged by Trump's cabinet picks. Journalists have stated that they feel as if their freedom of speech will be compromised. And organizations like Planned Parenthood have stated that they're afraid of their doors closing after talks of defunding. But when I reached out to find sources from all these fields, I had an incredible difficult time finding anybody willing to speak. 
Do people really feel safe in their jobs, or do they fear the consequences of speaking out? For American Student Radio, I'm Casey Ross. We end the show today on that note of uncertainty, and with the knowledge that throughout change, we the people and we as a country remain grounded in our Constitution. Thanks for listening to our show today. Catch up with us again next week, same time, as Hannah Boomershine talks about some of our producers' first experiences. Be well. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students from Indiana University in Bloomington. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash American Student Radio. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Check out Lunamatic's music at www.soundcloud.com slash Lunamatic. That's L-U-N-A-M-A-T-I-C. We'll have new episodes every Sunday on WIUX and streaming on our website at www.americanstudentradio.org. 